It was nice knowing you. Hey, if you need an outline, Mr. Christian is up here at the stack of outlines, and he would love to bring you one. So wink at him, wave at him, holler at him, throw something at him, and uh, he will bring you some notes. There's also some notes in the back if you need some. Okay, our study is called The Truth, and we're talking about things that you need to know as a Christian, things that you need to believe as a Christian, things that you need to be equipped to share as a Christian, and things that you need to be prepared to defend as a Christian. And we talked the first week that this involves your mind, things you need to know. This involves your heart, things that uh, you need to believe. This involves your mouth, things that you need to share. And then you add all of those things up together and you're talking about things and you're passionate about them and you know them and you're, you're then equipped to defend them. I have resisted uh, all the way through this study and will continue to resist calling this uh, evangelism training, but that's sort of what we're doing, right? We're teaching you, we're talking about, thinking about what does the Bible say, how should we be equipped, how should our minds be informed by the scriptures so that we can go out and we can share the good news with other people. Now, I'm going to break the first rule in public speaking, and I'm going to tell you, because it's kind of true, this topic tonight is not the most exciting topic that we're going to talk about in this study. In fact, as I look through, I think we have 12 weeks in this series uh, called The Truth, 12 weeks. This is the one that I would guess you will sit in here on Wednesday night and you will think, this doesn't have anything to do with me. The things that he's talking about are things that I can't do, I'm I don't have time to do, I'm not smart enough to do, and I'm telling you right out of the gate that the reason George Barna does research on the state of the church in 2016 and it's absolutely, totally chaotic is because people in churches all around the United States look at each other and they say, this is not my job. This is the pastor's job to do this, and I can't do that, and I'm not supposed to do that. And the result of year after year, decade after decade, of the church not being serious about discipleship, the result of all that is the numbers that we talked about in that State of the Church survey. Total, absolute confusion about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So I'm telling you right out of the gate, you can do this. Any one of you in this room can do this. I promise. This is not rocket science. It's not necessarily easy, and it's not something that's real quick. You know, like when we think evangelism training, we say, oh, I want to memorize a few little lines, and I can just give these people zingers and just zing them with the gospel real quick and then feel like I've done evangelism. That's not what we're talking about. It is not at all what we're talking about. So tonight we're talking about discipleship. And really, this may be the most important lesson in all the stuff that we're talking about on this Uh, Wednesday night series because you can do everything else that I'm teaching you you can learn the gospel you can understand conversion you can pick up some techniques I'm going to share with you about how to share your faith in future weeks you can understand the issues of worldview you can master everything else that we're going to talk about if you don't actually do this what we're talking about tonight it's all a complete waste a hundred percent a complete and total waste if you don't do this part 
of what we're talking about tonight, and that's discipleship. So I'm telling you, tonight's about discipleship, and I'm going to start with this question. What is evangelism? And I'm starting with that question because there's a lot of confusion about evangelism. Complete confusion. What does it mean to share your faith? You saw the numbers I put up there earlier. Half of the Christians in this country don't think they have any obligation to share their faith with other people. So what is it? I think if you asked a lot of people, church-going people, you said, how does your church do evangelism? What's the evangelistic strategy of your church? I think some people would say, well, my church, uh, we buy these little tracts, these little gospel paper things, you know, little booklets, and we give them out to everybody. And then when we go out, we're supposed to, like, leave them with people. Just give them a little booklet. Like I go to the restaurant, I eat my dinner, I'm uh, uh, leaving a tip for the waitress and I leave her a whopping dollar fifty, and then I slip a little track in there and I leave it with her and I say, ha, did some evangelism today, great. And I'm telling you, that's not evangelism. Definitely not evangelism. I think a lot of people would say, well, at my church we have these big events, okay? And we do some big events, we're going to do one at the end of the, uh, the month here in October, we're going to do Light the Night. Right out in the front parking lot, we're going to invite a lot of folks. And a lot of people would say, maybe some of our people would say, that's an evangelistic event. And I'm going to push back and say, no, it's not, really. I mean, let's be honest about it. It's a community event. It's sort of a, an outreach to the community, giving them something to do, safe and fun, a family event. But it's not an evangelistic event because I'm not going to stand up and preach. And we don't need to feel bad that it's not an event. We just need to be honest about what it is, right? It's a community event. No direct evangelism is taking place. I'm not going to ask you guys to walk the parking lot when people pull up with their kids in the little ghost costume and a minion costume and a Dora costume, and you're going to like meet them in the parking lot and say, okay, I got to talk to you before you go in. You ready? I got something I got to share. We're not doing that. We say, we're glad you're here. I want you to have a good time tonight. We'd love for you to come back. It's not an evangelistic event. Um, I think a lot of churches would say, a lot of Christians would say, well, at my church we do like big rallies, like we participate in a big, you know, like a Billy Graham rally or this rally or that rally, and that, that would be sort of their evangelistic strategy. And then I think if you just asked those same people, you said, if you were going to share the gospel with somebody, what would you say to them? I don't think that they would immediately say, well, I would start off talking about the holiness of God, and then I'd talk about the sinfulness of man, then I'd explain who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, and then repentance and faith. I don't think they'd go down that route. I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, I would tell people that God loves you and he has a great plan for your life. Well, okay, you can tell people that, but that's not evangelism. We haven't done evangelism by telling people that, not even close. I think a lot of people would say uh, evangelism. Well, I'm going to uh, I'm going to share my testimony with somebody. If you want me to evangelize them, I'll share my testimony about how I got saved. Great, share your testimony with them. But that's not evangelism. That's sharing your testimony. That's sharing your story of what God's done in your life. But it's not evangelism. I think a lot of people. Okay, this is what I really think in the Bible Belt. You say. You need to go out and you're going to share the gospel with people. What are you going to tell them to do? 
And a lot of folks where we live in West Texas would say, oh, I'm going to tell them they need to go to church, and they need to do this, and they need to do that, and they need to stop doing this, and they need to stop doing this, and then to get their life in order, they need to do, 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 because deep down, they're those people on the statistics I showed you that say, my good works are going to get me into heaven. So if you ask them to share the gospel with somebody, they're going to go tell them, you better be a good person so you can get into heaven. Again, not evangelism. So here's a picture of a guy. You probably have never heard of this guy. His name is Donald McGavran. That's him on the left. And then you can see him over on the right uh, in that picture, the group picture, the bald guy. Okay, That's Donald McGavran. This guy comes from a missionary family in India. Okay, We've already talked about India a little bit. He comes from a missionary family in India. His family, at the time of his death, his parents and his grandparents, his third-generation missionary, had a combined 279 years of missionary service in India. That's a lot of time invested in that place. Okay, So this guy's a legit missionary. And he's walking around and he's talking with all these other missionaries in India one day. He lived, lived a while back. 50, 60, 70 years ago. He's talking with all these other missionaries, and he realizes something kind of strange, right? These missionaries are on the field in India, and everything that they do, they call it evangelism. If they go visit a village and try to get them water, they call that evangelism. And if they go and they try to do some education for the girls in a village who, you know, are underprivileged, they call that evangelism. And if they go and they just drop off Bibles in a village, they call that evangelism. Everything they do, they call it evangelism. It's evangelistic work. It's evangelistic ministry. And this guy has the guts to speak up and to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. If everything that we do is evangelism, then really, let's be honest, nothing is evangelism. Everything can't be evangelism. Something has to not be evangelism, and you guys are walking around calling it all evangelism. And so he says there's a lot of confusion. And so let's, let's answer this question. What is evangelism? Here's what it's not, okay? It is not presence or coercion or imposition or testimony or so, social action or apologetics. None of those things are evangelism. And a lot of the times we do that stuff or we see that stuff and we call it evangelism and it's not. And calling it evangelism doesn't make it evangelism. So sometimes presence. I've heard people say, I've had friends that were part of, they called them mission trips and they went to China and they went to orphanages in China. It's a great thing to do, right? Go minister to to kids in an orphanage in China. And you talk to them and you say, what do you do there? And they say, we go... And we hold the babies. Okay, what else do you do? That's all we do. We go and hold the babies. That's our mission trip. That's our evangelistic ministry. Say, okay, it's great for you to go minister to orphans. Jesus, the Bible, that's important, right? It's good. But it's not evangelism. Just Being there is not evangelism, okay? Take it out of the mission trip context and put it into our context. A lot of people say, you know, I don't really want to go to work and tell anybody about Jesus because that would be awkward. I just want to go to work and be a really nice person and hope that everybody sees how nice I am and that they just know that I love Jesus. What you're saying is, I just want my presence there to count for evangelism. I want you to go to work and I want you to be a nice person. That's way better than being a jerk. But it's not evangelism. 
okay? Coercion, imposition. If you manipulate people, if you're forcing something on people, that's not evangelism, right? The guy on the street corner with the hateful sign yelling and screaming at everybody who drives by just being a total jerk, that's not evangelism. That's just racket and noise. It's not evangelism. Testimony, we talked about that. It's not evangelism. Social action. One of the things we do when we go to Kenya is we build homes, right? That's social action. There's people there who need a home, and we go and we provide the money and a little bit of the labor. That's a good thing to do. I think God is pleased when you home the homeless. That's a good thing to do. But we can never come back from a mission trip where we build a home and feel like the building of the home is evangelism. It might give us the opportunity for evangelism, but just doing something nice for somebody isn't evangelizing them. Apologetics, that's arguing and defending the faith and sort of reasoning with people with different worldviews. All great things to do, important things to do, but it's not in and of itself evangelism. Here's a definition of evangelism I really like. This is from one of my professors, one of my PhD supervisors. Evangelism is the compassionate sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people in the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of bringing them to Christ as Savior and Lord that they in turn might share Him with others. That's evangelism. Think about it. Every part of that definition is important. It's the compassionate. Okay, The condition of your heart matters in evangelism. Your motives. The compassionate sharing of the good news. That's the first thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago. God is holy, man is sinful, Jesus is the answer. You need to repent and believe. That's the good news. Compassionate sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ with people who are lost. And we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, not our own power. And the purpose is so that they come to Jesus as Savior and Lord and that they turn around and they take that message to other people. That's evangelism. Okay? Now let's think about this. What's the difference between evangelism and discipleship? I think people are confused on this. And I'll give you an example of that confusion. Um, You guys know I've pastored at two churches before I came here, right? So it means you go through that process of meeting with search committees and talking to deacons and teachers and all that stuff, meeting folks. And Brooke and I have actually been to a couple of other churches Uh, and done that process there where we did not end up moving there, did not end up serving there. So I've done this process several times. And multiple times I've been asked a question like this. In Sunday school, should we be evangelistic or should we focus on discipleship? What's your thoughts on that? Or sometimes the question sounds like this. When you preach, are you going to be evangelistic or are you going to be teaching. You're going to disciple people. Implicit in that question is the idea that you can do one or the other, but you can't do both. And implicit in the question is that those two things can be divided, draw a line down the middle and separate them. And this is one thing and this is another thing. And what I'm telling you is you cannot draw the line down the middle of the two. You absolutely can't do it. When you draw that line down the middle of the two, evangelism is no longer evangelism and discipleship is no longer discipleship. They have to go together. 
So we're talking about how to share your faith. And I'm telling you, this part of it, discipleship, has to be connected to it. If you disconnect it and you separate it, you've totally missed the point. If you take discipleship, quote-unquote discipleship, away from evangelism, all you have is moving people to a point of decision. But that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. But you can't make a disciple until you've shared the gospel with them in the first place. So those two things go together and you can't separate them. So one of my favorite authors is a guy named Robert Coleman. Dr. Coleman. No relation. He's a seminary professor and a pastor. And I, I like his book so much I have three copies of it. Okay, a Pretty good book when you buy three different copies of it. It's exactly the same in every copy, but you need three copies. It's that good. And he writes this book, and the book is called, are you ready for this? The Master Plan of Evangelism. The Master Plan of Evangelism. So you start to read this book. It's not a very long book, really, really short, small pages, not a lot of words, 100 100 pages only. You could read it in a night, easy. Um, You read through this and you say, he's not talking about evangelism, he's talking about discipleship. I think they have a typo on the cover. This is not a plan for evangelism. This is a plan for discipleship. But this is a pretty smart guy, and he knows what he's saying, right? What he's saying is evangelism is discipleship. They go together. You can't separate them. If you want to do discipleship, you have to evangelize people. And if you want to evangelize people, you have to disciple them. You can't separate them. When you separate them, they become totally different things that Jesus never intended for them to be. Just one little plug For Dr. Coleman, you get on YouTube and you look up the YouTube channel for the C.S. Lewis Institute. They have a series of talks. He goes through this book, which we're going to talk about in a minute, 15-minute segments, and he talks about the whole book. And I listened to about half of them this week. They're fantastic. C.S. Lewis Institute, Robert Coleman, Master Plan of Evangelism. You'll love it. So it's on YouTube for free. So evangelism and discipleship, they go together, right? We tracking? So let's ask this question. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? By definition, a disciple is a learner and a follower. Someone who learns and somebody who follows. Listen. Discipleship and evangelism go together. When you share the gospel with somebody... The goal is not that they pray a prayer and quote-unquote become a Christian. The goal in sharing the gospel with somebody is that they become a disciple. You just need to be honest with people up front about that, right? Jesus says count the cost. He doesn't hide stuff from people. He tells them right up front what he expects. It's going to cost you to follow me. And when you're sharing the gospel with people, you need to say, look, I'm not asking you to say some kind of magic words. I'm not asking you to do some religious thing, whatever. I'm asking you to be a follower of Jesus. That's an ongoing thing for the rest of your life. That's what a disciple is. I want you to look at a few verses that I did not write on your outline. So you can jot these down if you want to. You can just flip around. Look in the New Testament at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. We're thinking about a disciple. Is a learner or a follower? Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. 
And in Philippians 3, verse 17, he says this. Brothers, join in imitating me. Imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Follow my example. Imitate me. A lot of Christians today would look at that and they would say, uh, I thought the bracelet was WWJD, not WWPD. What did Paul do? But what did Jesus do? Right? But Paul says, hey, all you got to do is follow me. So it's kind of strange. Flip over to the left and look at 1 Corinthians 4. He says the same thing to the church in Corinth, just so we know it's not a mistake. But we're evangelicals in that statistical category, so we don't think the Bible has mistakes. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He's talking to the church in Corinth. 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Just do what I do. You want to know who you need to follow? You need to follow me. You read that and you're like, Paul, you're like, you got an ego trip. You think you're better than Jesus. Why would you not just tell people to follow Jesus? And the answer is really pretty simple. Jesus was in heaven. He descended to heaven. He wasn't there. If Paul says, follow Jesus, they're going to look around and say, uh, how do we do that? Where is he? We need, what do we look at? What's our model? What's the example? And Paul knows they don't have that. And he says, so I'm going to follow Jesus and you're going to follow me. And we're going to follow him together. And you see that. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. It makes sense of these passages a little bit. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's saying to them, I want you to be disciples. But you can't just follow some crazy idea of a guy who lives up in heaven. you got to have an example of what to do. So I'm going to follow Jesus, and you're going to follow me, and I want you to be disciples, followers and learners. And that's the goal. When you share the gospel with somebody, your kids, your grandkids, your neighbor, your coworker, whoever, the goal is I want you to follow. I want you to learn. I want you to be a disciple. Why should we make disciples? I'm going to give you four answers. Answer number one, to obey the command of Jesus. And we're not going to look this up because we've already looked it up in this study. This is a great commission. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And when you do that, I'm with you to the end of the age. And the one command in that, a big, long sentence. The one command is go make disciples. Make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. So Jesus commands it. Reason two, why make disciples? To follow the example of Jesus. And I do want you to look at Mark 3. Mark 3, verse 14. Start in verse 13, Mark three thirteen. Jesus went up the mountain, and he called to him those he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. And why did he do that? Why did he appoint twelve apostles? Here it is. So that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. The first thing Jesus wanted these guys to do is just follow him around. I just want you to be with me. 
I want you to watch me. I want you to listen to me. I want you to learn from me. I want you to pay attention. I want you to do exactly what I do. You guys are going to be with me. Now, a lot of times when we think about Jesus, okay, you go back to children's Sunday school, maybe you think about the little pictures that the teacher held up, or maybe the teacher did like flannel graph little stories up on the thing, right? You picture those scenes of Jesus. We think, okay, Jesus is teaching, and there's just thousands of people there to see him, right? That's what we think about. These multitudes and multitudes, people as far as you can see, and they're crammed, and sometimes he's up on the hill talking to them, sometimes he's out on the boat talking to them, and there's instances like that in the Gospels. But can I tell you something kind of crazy? In his three years of ministry, Jesus gave more time to those 12 men than the rest of the world combined. He spent more time and more energy and more attention and more effort and more teaching and explanation and prayer and all of it. More with these guys than the rest, all the other people on planet earth combined at the time. You say, well, he didn't care about just the masses of people. No, he cared about them very deeply. But he understood you can't disciple masses. I can disciple these guys. 12 guys. And the first thing he says to them is, I want you to be with me. So he sets this example for us. Reason number three, why make disciples? To follow the example of the book of Acts. Look at Acts 14. Acts 14. Sometimes when Paul went through a a town or an area, he got run out, he got beat, he got chased off. But whenever he could, this was his practice. Acts 14, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When Paul goes on these mission trips, he's not going back to Antioch or Jerusalem saying, we had this many people fill out decision cards. He's going back saying, in Lystra, we left many disciples, people who were followers and learners. And then when we left there, we went back through to all the other disciples and we strengthened them Because we don't want them to just sort of be for Jesus today and then not tomorrow. We want them to follow. We want them to continue to learn. One more reason. Why should we make disciples? Because new believers are vulnerable. And you guys, I think many of you know 1 Peter 5.8. It says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. And a new believer is vulnerable. So we want to help them become a mature disciple. How do we do it? I'm going to let you look these verses up in Thessalonians, and I'm just going to give you these four answers. You do it through personal contact. Secondly, you do it through follow-up materials. Thirdly, you do it through trained representatives. And fourthly, you do it through intercessory prayer. That's how Paul made disciples in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 says, He... Sh- We shared with you the gospel, and we shared with you our very selves. We gave ourselves to you so that you would be disciples. It was more than just a a teaching, but it was a giving of themselves. Follow-up materials. He wrote them a letter. And I have a typo on your outline. 
the correct reference is chapter 5, verse 27, not chapter 5, verse 7. So that's a typo you can correct. But he wrote them a letter to follow up with them, 1 Thessalonians. Through representatives, in chapter 3, he talks about sending Timothy. He couldn't be there, but he's sending someone else to help disciple them and teach them and shepherd them. And then he says he's praying for them. And it's fascinating. Go back and look at how Paul prayed for this church. Chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, 9 and 10. He didn't say, okay, let's go over the sick list. He didn't say, okay, let's go over the people who, you know, have a big something coming up tomorrow. Not that it's bad to pray for those things, but what he prayed for is, I want you to be mature in your faith. I want you to grow. I want you to continue to follow Jesus. He's praying that they would be disciples. So when we're making disciples, what do we talk about? Five topics for discipleship. Doctrine, devotion, family, ministry, character. Those are the things you talk about with somebody, you model for somebody when you're making a disciple. First of all, doctrine. They need to know the truth. It means you need to know the truth and you need to communicate it with them, share it with them. Devotion. Under devotion, we're talking about spiritual disciplines, right? A new Christian has absolutely no idea how to read the Bible. You understand that? Somebody comes to our church and they accept Jesus and we baptize them. We give them a brand new Bible and we say, way to go. Dig into that and we are sure glad to have you. They're going to take that home and they're going to say, I have no idea what, I don't know what this is. I don't know what to do with this. Maybe some of you are in that position. You say, no one ever taught me how to actually read it, how to study it. I don't understand it. I can't make sense of it. I don't know how it all fits together. And you would agree that unless somebody teaches you how to do that, you don't know. Look, you have to teach people how to pray. People don't instinctively know how to pray well. Instinctively, do you know how we pray? Selfishly. Just for all the stuff we want. Instinctively, that's what we do. You need to have somebody model that for you so we teach devotion. Family. Men need to know what they're supposed to do in their family. You've got to teach them that. You've got to model it for them. Moms, dads, children, they need to understand how they all fit together in the family. Ministry. You've got to show people how they fit into the body of Christ. You can't just say, I hope they're going to catch it, but you've got to help them with that. You've got to teach them that. In character. Okay, so those are the things you talk about in discipleship. Now, here's the real question, okay? I'm going to come back to my buddy Robert Coleman, the master plan of evangelism, and this is what he says. He starts off in the book and he says, Look, today we are totally concerned with big things. We want big rallies, we want big groups of people, we want big numbers of responses. And he says, Okay, we've been doing that for 50 years or so. How's it worked? Not so good. We've been doing big, thinking about big for decades, and what it's got us is that state of the church study we talked about in, at the beginning of the night. It, it, it hasn't worked. So he just asked, this is kind of a crazy question, right? Well, how did Jesus do it? How did Jesus make disciples? And he goes through the Gospels, and he looks at how Jesus invested in these 12 guys, these apostles, And here's the things that he lays out in the book. Listen to me. Are you listening? Everybody in this room can do these things with another person. Every one of you. This is the part where I'm going to lay these out and you're going to really start to say, oh, come on. 
That's why, that's why we pay you. You're the pastor. That's why Christian is the Sunday school teacher. Christian can do that stuff. I can't do that stuff. That's, that's not my job. I can't do that. Look, you don't have to have 12 people like Jesus did. You don't have to have 20 people. You don't have to have three people. I'm just telling you, everybody in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can do these things with some other person. Maybe it's a grandkid. Maybe it's a kid or a friend or a cousin. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's somebody in your Sunday school class. Maybe it's somebody you work with. You can do these things with somebody. So here's the things that Coleman lays out. Number one, selection. And what he means here is you can't disciple everyone. If you spread yourself so thin that you're worried about everyone, you're not going to invest anything in anybody. You've got to say, who is God calling me to invest in? You've got to pick some people. And I love what he says in the book. He says, when Jesus was selecting guys to be in his group, he didn't look for the richest. He certainly didn't look for the smartest because the guys he picked were not so bright sometimes. He didn't look for the most influential. He didn't pick the movers and the shakers, the people everybody looked up to in the community. He looked for honest committed men those were the qualifications will you be a person of integrity and will you be committed to this to follow me that's the folks that he looked for will you be teachable secondly is what Coleman calls association okay this is Mark three fourteen. he called them to be with him you have to spend time with somebody if you're going to disciple them this is going to be a sacrifice on your part. You're going to have to give up some of your time to invest in other people. You have to be around them. They have to see you. They have to see how you interact with your family. They have to listen to how you pray. They have to see you in difficult situations. It's not going to happen when we walk by each other in the hallway on Sunday mornings and we say, Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Everybody's good. Fine. Everything's good. Great. All right. See you later. Not going to happen. You got to be together. So you got to select people. You got to spend time together. We talked about Jesus. He spent more time with these 12 men than the rest of the world combined. And listen, even out of those 12, it was Peter, James, and John that had most access to Jesus. And there were some times where he said, I'm not even taking you other nine guys. I'm just taking you three. And I'm going to invest just in the three of you. So you got to spend time with people. Thirdly, Coleman lists out consecration. And i just sort of read you a few things he says. He expected the men who followed him to obey. They didn't have to be smart, but they had to be loyal. They didn't have to memorize a creed, but they had to be loyal. They didn't have to understand everything, but they did have to turn away from sin. And listen, as the church, we have failed to call people to this. We just, we're just happy with, will you get dunked and... Will you sign a card and come up front and we can shake hands with you at the end of the service? We're pretty happy with that because that makes us look good. We can turn in some numbers to somebody who's going to read them and think we're doing a great job. And instead, Coleman's saying, Jesus told these guys up front, you've got to be committed to this. Listen, when you share the gospel with somebody, you've got to tell them right up front, Jesus is calling you to be a disciple. Not just to make a decision, but to be a disciple. So there's got to be consecration, setting apart. Number four, impartation. 
And what he means here is that Jesus is imparting himself. He's giving of himself to these guys. He's giving them his time. He's giving them his life. He's giving them the spirit. And then he tells them, you have received freely, give freely. I have given myself to you to the fullest extent. And now you need to turn around and give yourself to other people. You have to be selfless. Number five, demonstration. Jesus never asked anyone to do anything he did not already do. Prayer, memorizing scripture, sharing the gospel, teaching people. He modeled all of those things. How to live, how to serve. He modeled all of it. He demonstrated for them what it looks like. Number six, delegation. He gave them tasks. You remember when we went through the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus sent out the 12 on a little training mission to go out and preach, and then they came back, and then he sent out the 72, and they went out on a little mission, and they preached. So he gave them responsibilities, things to do, and he held them accountable. Number seven, supervision. After he gave them a job, he talked to them about it. How did it go? What went good? What went wrong? And then lastly, here's the kicker, reproduction. Reproduction. I really, really like what Coleman says, and I think it captures the spirit of the Great Commission, Go Make Disciples. He says, do you want to know the test of how well you do evangelism? Here's the test. Okay. How well do you, as a Christian, as a Sunday school class, as a church, how well do you do evangelism? It is not how many people raise a hand. It is not how many people get baptized. It is not how many people join your church. He says the real test of you evangelizing and making disciples is to look at the next generation and to see if they do for others what you did for them. Does the mission continue in the next generation? If it doesn't, you failed. I read an article today. It was by one of the bishops of the Church of England. And he said, we're one generation away from being dead. One more generation, there will, for all intents and purposes, be no church here. It'll be gone. Well, what have you guys been doing? You've been like playing cards, you've been having Monopoly contests, Scrabble contests, you've been playing basketball. What have you been doing all these years? And they would say, well, we've been preaching and we've been teaching and we've been doing all these things. They haven't made disciples. And they drug kids to church for one generation, but they didn't make disciples of them and those kids fell away. And they said, well, what happened? We drug them to church. Well, you didn't make disciples. You just drug people to church. And they say, well, you know, we had these big evangelistic rallies. We had crusades. D.L. Moody came through, United Kingdom. Billy Sunday, other guys, they came through. Billy Graham came. We had these big things. What happened to all those people? Well, you made decisions. You didn't make disciples. And the test of your evangelism and the test of your discipleship is when you're done, can the people that you've invested in turn around and do it to somebody else? If they can't do that, you haven't done your job. 
And again, I know you guys listen to this, a lot of you guys, and you think, ah, man, that's tough. I don't know how to do that. I'm not competent enough to do that. Here's the thing. A disciple is a learner and a follower. You don't have to be all the way over there with Jesus on the maturity scale to lead somebody else. You have to be one step ahead of them. And stay one step ahead of them. That's it. So I'll give you one story and then we'll close. Just as an example. Hopefully an encouragement. Um, My dad grew up Catholic. And my mom grew up not Catholic. Baptist. And when they got married, my dad went to church with her. And became a believer. And a few years later, my mom found herself at our church as the children's director. Right? She's in charge of fifth grade and down all the Sunday school classes, all the nurseries, all the stuff. So it's her job to find Sunday school teachers. And that means what it meant for my family is she would look for teachers, look for teachers, look, 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 look. And when she got down to needing one more teacher, she looked at my dad and said, you're the last one. Plugging you in. This year you get to teach fifth grade. This year you get to teach third grade. This year you get to teach second grade. Whatever. And my dad would tell you, and, and he's told, you know, he's told this story to some other people in his church now. He came from a, a, a church experience growing up where he didn't know the Bible. He didn't know it. And all of a sudden, he sort of gets tossed in as, you're the teacher. And he said, I really didn't know what I was doing. I just stayed one week ahead of the kids. I had the lesson And I studied it for that week, and I could teach that one lesson. That's the only thing I knew. The first week I taught, I knew one lesson. That's all I knew. But I knew it, and I could teach it to those kids. And then the next week, I learned another lesson, and I can teach that to those kids. I'm going to learn a little bit more, and I'm going to teach it to somebody else. And here's the crazy thing. You do that for a year, five years, ten years, twenty years, 25 years, and you wake up one day and you say, oh, I kind of know a lot about the Bible. How'd that happen? Grew up in a family where we didn't read it, talk about it, went to a church where it wasn't ever opened, wasn't something we ever discussed. All of a sudden, you wake up 20 years later and you know the Bible. It's because you stayed one step ahead of those you were leading. And I'm telling you, you guys can do that. There's people in your life that need you to invest in them. And here's the thing. My capabilities are very limited. And if you're looking at me and let's say Corey and Hunter and Terry and a Sunday school teacher, a small group of people to do all of the discipling of the people in this church family, I'll just bust your bubble and tell you it is not going to happen. We can't do it. You know why? Because I have the same amount of hours in a day that you have. I have the same limitations you have. I can't disciple a hundred people, it's impossible. It, it can't happen. And so what you've got to do is look at your spot in life and the people in your family and your kids and your grandkids and your coworkers and whoever, and you've got to say, who can I lead? Who is one person I can begin to invest in and try to lead them and teach them and encourage them and set an example for them? And I'm telling you, you guys can do it. And I'll tell you this, out of all the things we talk about in this series... If I could just make you do one thing and do it with joy, this would be it. If I could just make you go home to your homes and do this, 
this is the one thing I'd pick over anything else in this study. Because you get the effect of a real, bona fide, spiritual pyramid scheme, right? One person invests in two, who then invests in two more, who invests in two more and two more. And before long, you've won the world. You've won the masses. It was really slow, and it took a lot of time and a lot of energy, and there were setbacks and frustrations, but it works. And that was the plan that Jesus gave to his disciples. So there you go. That's discipleship. And I want to pray for you that, uh, that God would give you wisdom about how to put this into practice in your life. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the good news about Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for the life that you give us in him. And we pray tonight that you would help us to personalize and accept this challenge to make disciples of all of the nations. And I pray that you would press it home on our hearts and we would understand this is our job. It's not the missionary's job. It's not the preacher's job. It's the job of your church, of your people. And it may look a little bit different in everybody's life. But I believe that there is someone for everyone in this room that they can invest in. That they can spend time with. That they can lead one step at a time. And Father, as a church, we want to be serious about making disciples. Not just decisions, not just having people respond to a message and and pat ourselves on the back for having more folks. But we, we want to disciple the people that you have called to be part of this church family. We want to teach your word. We want to obey your word. We want to model it for people. Father, I pray for parents and I pray for grandparents in the room that you would give them wisdom and conviction about their responsibilities to their families. And Father, we pray that you would empower us for this task because we know that it is a job too big for us and that we can only do it through the power of your spirit. Father, continue to give us wisdom and understanding as we think about the truth and what it means to us and how we need to turn around and take that truth to our families and our community and to the ends of the world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.